All right, let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Psalm 141, if you would. Psalm 141, as we continue our study through this great book, coming now to the close of the book. I noticed a lot of you didn't put your hymn books out back after you took them out. Maybe you didn't trust the technology, or you remembered we had hymn books, and they're pretty good to sing from. There are benefits to using a hymnal, too, so... Psalm 141, four psalms in a row, beginning in Psalm 140, have a very similar theme. All are titled as Psalms of David, and all express the psalmist's desperation and his need for deliverance from God. We looked at Psalm 140 last Wednesday night. This evening, we're going to look at Psalm 141. And just before we read the text, I want you to think about the difference in the way that we pray. There's times when our prayers are calm and assured. They're at a, at a normal cadence and they're what we might call our everyday normal prayers when things are about average. But there are other times in our life when our prayer could best be titled, what I've titled this psalm tonight, A Cry of Desperation, where we may not even have the words to express what is on our heart. We are crying out to God with true urgency, and we desperately need to hear from God because of some crisis that we're facing. Psalm 141 is exactly this kind of a prayer. By the way, there's nothing wrong with the calm and assured prayers And there's nothing wrong with the cry of desperation. There are different seasons of life and different needs that we have. But Psalm 141, you'll hear as we read through this psalm that the psalmist definitely needs to hear from God here. He needs for God to deliver him. Look in verse 1. He says this, Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord. In thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets whilst that I withal escape. The psalmist here is crying out to God and he desperately needs for God to deliver him. Tonight we've broken the psalm into three sections. You'll see how it flows together as we make our way through the psalm in our study tonight. But we notice in the first two verses, 
that the psalmist is uttering a desperate cry. He speaks in verse 1 in this way, it is a personal supplication. He says, Lord, I cry unto thee. This is a wonderful description of prayer, actually. It's when I speak directly to God. When God is willing to hear the things that I say. This is a marvelous truth of Scripture that we hold to, that we cling to. We don't need to go to some other man and ask that man to pray for us. We have the opportunity to come directly into the presence of God based upon the name, the authority of Jesus Christ. We are welcomed in His presence as children of God. And so we can come with our personal supplication. Certainly tonight, I hope that prayer is personal to you because prayer must be personal for it to be real. Too often, prayer is impersonal, formulaic. It's repetition of things that we've heard other people say. It's not an expression of our personal heart to God. But real prayer is when we talk to God for ourselves. Prayer must be personal in order to be real. Now tonight, this doesn't mean that we can't ask others to pray for us. Certainly we can, and intercession is a valuable tool of spiritual warfare when others pray for us. But intercession of others for me can never substitute for my own supplication. And the psalmist says so plainly, Lord, I cry unto thee. And then just think about the the absolute privilege that it is for me to be able to speak to him. The creator God and his ears are open to my cry. Why would we not come before his presence if we really believe that he hears and answers prayer? So it's a personal supplication, but you'll notice In verse 1, he's asking the Lord, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. So he uses that word cry twice in verse 1. I cry unto thee when I cry unto thee. And that idea of crying means he's lifting up his voice. He's, He's urgent in his request. He's speaking loudly and with a sense of passion as he's talking to the Lord, and he asks God there in verse 1, make haste unto me. Now that phrase, make haste, means, God, I need you to do this right now. There, there can't be any waiting, Lord. I need you to do this immediately. I think about, and maybe some of you can identify with this, there's a difference in my wife's voice between when she needs me to do something And she's not in a hurry for me to do it. But the other day, she called for me to come. And I could tell by her voice that she meant she needed me to come immediately. She was desperate for me to get there in that moment. There was a situation that had to be taken care of upstairs. And she needed some help with it. And she was in a place where, I need you right now. And she didn't say, I need you right now, but the way that she said it, I knew she needed me right now. Do you know the difference between those things? That's what the psalmist is expressing here. He's talking to God, and there are prayer requests that we can bring to the Lord, and we can say, Lord, you know, whenever you, I'm just waiting on you, I'm patient, patiently waiting to see what you have, and there are prayer requests that we come to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I need you right now. I need you to do something. Make haste to come to me. 
And that's what the psalmist is expressing. Whatever he was facing, and we think that perhaps the setting of Psalm 141 is again Saul pursuing him and seeking after his life. And perhaps it was one of those times where Saul was very close to catching him. And he's crying out to the Lord, Lord, make haste. I need you to work in my life right now. There's a place for urgent prayer. Sometimes we need God's immediate intervention, and we can cry to God for that. And I'm telling you tonight, it's a wonderful comfort to know that we can come to our Heavenly Father with these kind of desperate requests and know that He hears us. It's a desperate cry. A desperate cry, then, as He says in verse 1, Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Give ear. And I want you to think about this question. If God does not hear our prayer, then what hope do we have? Is there any hope if God is not going to hear and answer our prayer? Obviously, the psalmist is in a place where he has exhausted his own resources. He's down to the end. There's nothing else for him to hope in. We'll see that As we get closer to the end of the psalm, he expresses it very eloquently. And he says to God, if you don't give ear, then what am I going to do? I think oftentimes we ought to have this sense of urgency in our prayers. And certainly we ought to have this sense of need. The reason we pray is because we are not able to do these things. These are things that God must do for us. We are completely, utterly dependent upon him. Now, you'll notice in verse 2, he speaks about how his prayer would be continuous. And and he denotes that by the way he describes his prayer. He he says in verse 2, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. Now, in in the tabernacle or in the temple, the incense would be lit and set out by the priests in the morning. That was one of the first tasks of the morning. And so he's depicting his prayer as being something that he would get started on right away in the morning. Then he speaks about lifting up his hands and the ideas of lifting up his hands in worship or in prayer, lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So it's clear that he has in his mind that his prayer is going to be from the morning to the evening all day long. He's going to be bringing his request to the Lord. In other words, this is not just an urgent prayer that he's praying one time, but he's praying this over and over and over again because it's on his heart. It's something that he can't stop thinking about. He continues to bring it before the Lord over and over again. And when he uses that that, that description of his prayer as incense, you know, the incense that was fashioned for the tabernacle and later for the temple was according to a recipe that was given by Jehovah to Moses. And and God said, no one should ever copy this incense for any other purpose. It is only for use in the house of God. It is to be particularly set aside for that. And, And God described that incense, which was representative of the prayers of God's people, which would take place in that in that place, in that tabernacle or that temple. He describes that incense as pleasing to him. Or, in other words, the fragrance was something that he enjoyed. 
And now think about that. Because the psalmist is hopeful that his prayer will be acceptable to the Lord. He's hopeful that the Lord will be pleased that he's coming to him in prayer. So he's desperate, but he's also very much aware of the fact that he needs for God to hear him. He needs for God to look upon him with favor. So he's coming to God with this desperate cry. Then in verses 3 through 6, the, the main part of the psalm right in the middle, he brings a sincere request to God, actually a couple of sincere requests. First of all, in verse 3, he prays for himself. And he says, Lord, set a watch before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Set a watch. What is a watch? Well, it's not, you know, what we wear on our wrist to tell the time. But rather, it's the idea of keep, keep a guard over or a protection over. And the idea of a, of a watch over our lips is this sense. And, and James really captures this when he speaks about man's tongue as a world of iniquity. And it's something that can so easily be set on fire of hell. We can so easily sin with our mouth. And isn't it ironic that the same mouth that is being used to pray to God could also be used to sin against God. And so he says this, Lord, set a watch over my mouth, over my lips. Don't let me say the things that I might be prone to say. Keep my lips or keep the door of my lips. And I like that description. You know, sometimes when we were kids, we would use the analogy of a zipper. Zip your lips. But a door is pretty good too. Close the door. Sometimes it's better to just be silent. Sometimes it's good if God can give us the discernment to not say the thing that is on our heart, or that is about ready to come out of our mouth. Have you ever said something and wished that you could just get it back, get back in there? It doesn't work that way. Once it's been said, it's been said. So he cries to God because he knows that even in the midst of his perilous situation, and maybe even because of his perilous situation, he's prone to saying things that he ought not to say. And he needs God to help him to keep a watch so that he would not sin with his tongue. Then he goes on in verse 4, and he asks God to incline not my heart to any evil thing. Now, I don't think that God is ever going to incline our heart to any evil thing. But I believe what he's stressing here is that he knows he has an inclination towards evil things. He knows that he has a tendency, and of course we all know because of our sinful nature, that our nature, our our old man, our flesh, can easily be tilted towards that which is evil and wrong. And, And then all around us, the world is going after sin with fervency and passion, and it could seem impossible for us to stand for righteousness. And it It seems as if the psalmist is expressing to God, Lord, I need your help. Not only preserve me in my speech, but preserve me in my actions. Help me to be careful not to go after the things that everybody else is going after and that my flesh is so easily drawn towards. Do you ever find yourself being drawn towards sin? You find sin being the the gut level response or the natural reaction just in that moment. You give in to temptation 
Evidently, the psalmist David was familiar with this, and he cried out to the Lord to deliver him from this tendency by not inclining his heart. Certainly, it is difficult when the world all around us is doing so much wickedness and sin. It can be easy for us as believers to excuse smaller increments of sin. To say, well, I'm not doing as much as they are. I'm not going as far as they are. But God doesn't want our heart to be inclined towards that at all. And it is appropriate for us to talk to God about the inclination of our heart and ask God to deliver us from that, especially in the moment when we are facing temptation. He says something very interesting in verse 4, though, about these wicked men, these men who practice wicked works with the men that work iniquity. And he says, let me not eat of their dainties. I, like, I don't know why I like that, but I like that. Let me not eat of their dainties. And you say, what are dainties? Well, I think we understand what dainties are. We, we just came through Thanksgiving season, and most of us are still eating far too many dainties. It seems like the season between Thanksgiving and Christmas is dainty eating season, all right? So maybe we all need to pray that God would deliver us from that, but that's not what he's speaking about. He's speaking about the fact that the world offers a lot of pleasurable things. Dainties are things that are desirable or things that get our interest, things that look like they would bring pleasure or satisfaction. And he says, Lord, the the world is trying to allure me. These evil men are trying to draw me in, but please don't let me eat of those dainties. This could be really tempting for a child of God who's facing persecution. Wouldn't it be easier to just give in and go eat of the dainties of the world? And the psalmist says, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give in, so help me. He's expressing his abhorrence of evil, but deep down inside he knows that this is a struggle. This is a reality. This is a grappling that he's facing, and he needs the Lord's strength. You never will overcome your flesh without the power of God. You will try in vain to live a sanctified life apart from his enabling. He's abhorring evil, but recognizing he needs the Lord's help. But then he also expresses in this section his love for the righteous. Did you see it there in verse 5 and 6? He hates evil. He doesn't want to go after evil things, but he says in verse 5, let the righteous smite me. What does he mean by this? Well, he's clearly speaking about the fact that he is willing to bear the rebuke of those who are righteous. Even if that rebuke feels like a smiting, even if it feels like the righteous man has not been kind and careful with his words, he'd rather hear the truth. He wants to know the truth about himself. Let the righteous smite me. He's willing to receive the rebuke of the righteous. He saw the righteousness or the righteous smiting him, correcting him in verse 5 as a kindness. Most of us do not feel or think this way. Most of us have to fight against the tendency to react against correction. We don't really enjoy being corrected by others, especially if the other person doesn't have the right spirit or isn't careful in how they address it. Now, I'm not suggesting here tonight that we should ignore how to 
how to uh, express correction to another person. We ought to think about that. But when you're on the receiving end, it can be easy to dismiss correction because you don't like the tone of the person who is correcting. The psalmist is realizing that if he is corrected or if he is spoken to by someone who is righteous, that would be a kindness because it would keep him from going towards that which is evil. He describes it further, not only as a kindness, but he says if he is reproved, it would be like an excellent oil. And of course, in those days, in the Old Testament times, an oil was something that was used for healing. You might know that there's quite a few healing oils that are available even today that are as effective or more effective than some of the modern medicines that we find. They're actually very effective at healing. There are, they are herbal things that God has provided in nature which provide tremendous healing to wounds and scars and things like that. So he speaks about the rebuke of the, of the, the righteous man as an oil that would anoint him or that would bring healing in his life, that would help him. How many of us regard correction in this way? Especially when we're already burdened down with trouble and difficulty, with pain and suffering, in this case with persecution. It seems like what I need is kindness. What I need is love. What I need is someone to to be patient with me. But the psalmist is saying, what I need is correction. What I need is reproof. What I need is for someone to tell me the truth. So he's willing to receive their rebuke. He's also willing to intercede for their calamities. So the next verses and statements are somewhat puzzling. I think, I think I got it right. But I will be the first to say, I'm not sure. Because some of the things he says are worded in such a way, even Spurgeon seemed to have trouble figuring out exactly what the psalmist was saying here. But I'm going to take my best stab at it. He says, it'll be an excellent oil when I'm reproved. But then he says at the end of verse 5, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. In other words... It seems as if David, the man of God, is not the only one who is facing persecution and difficulty. And he's referring here, obviously, contextually, he's referring to other righteous people because he wants to receive reproof from them. But now he says he is not only willing to receive their rebuke, he is also willing to intercede for their calamities. He's recognizing that he's not the only one who's going through some trouble. Now, sometimes, because we dislike rebuke, we get offended at those who dare speak truth to us, and we allow that to change our opinion of that person, and maybe we get a little sore at them. But David is saying this, I'm going to pray for them. When they go through trials, through calamities, I'm going to intercede for them. I'm going to cry out to the Lord for them. It's also helpful for us to understand that we're not the only ones who are going through calamities and difficulties. There are others around us who are also going through difficulties. He goes on, third of all, as he's expressing his love for the righteous, and he expresses that he is willing also to encourage them in trials. I believe that's what he's describing in verse 6. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. The idea... I believe there 
the judges being overthrown, righteousness is being overthrown, the stony places, there's hardship and difficulty that they're facing. And he says, when this happens, they're going to hear my words and my words will be sweet. In other words, he's, I believe, expressing this thought that as he's not the only one facing trials, he is determined to be a source of refuge for those righteous men who are being mistreated. He wants to minister to them as he hopes they will minister to him with reproof. Indeed, it is true about the life of David that during this season of his life, many people who were oppressed by Saul and those in authority came looking for David and found refuge with him. And by the time this season of his life was completed, David had gathered around him a band of mighty men, men who had come looking to to him for justice and for relief from oppression And those men became so loyal to him that they formed the core of his fighting army for his entire kingship. You see, David understood the power of an encouraging word. And it's helpful to us to realize that many people around us are going through some stony places. They're facing some oppression and some difficulty. And we have the opportunity to minister to them with sweet words. Righteous men often need words of encouragement during their transit through stony places. And we have the opportunity to be the purveyor of those encouraging words. Maybe tonight God will give you insight and help you to think of someone who could use some encouragement. So often, have you noticed how it is when we're going through trouble, we're focused on our trouble, my difficulty. This is what I'm... Why doesn't anybody notice what's happening to me? Why doesn't anybody encourage me? And we get so focused on ourselves that we forget many other people around us need that same kind of encouragement. You'll find, by the way, that when you go to encourage others, you always end up being encouraged. I don't know why it works that way. I think it's a law that God has written. And so if you need to be encouraged tonight, go find someone else who needs some encouragement. You might find that you'll receive encouragement in return. So he's requesting to the Lord for some things. He's requesting about the, the, uh, himself, his own personal bent. He's requesting about these other righteous men. And now we come to verse 7. And from verse 7 to verse 10, there's a hopeful look. Now, it doesn't seem very hopeful, actually, when you read it, especially verse 7. He paints a vivid word picture. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth. This is not a good picture. Dried bones that have been dragged out of the sepulcher and scattered around on the ground, there's no hope there. There's no life in dead bones. He goes on to paint the picture even more vividly when he speaks about as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. We've got piles of firewood back here, and Isaac has been busily splitting and stacking firewood for me so that we can burn it in the fireplace. I guarantee you that once that wood is cut, and it's cut into firewood or or fireplace size, and it's split into logs for burning, there's no branches coming off. There's no fruit in the spring. It's quite dead. In fact, we want it to be quite dead. We need it to dry out so that it'll burn and give us heat in our house. 
But the description that the psalmist is, is painting with his words is very vivid. He's describing himself. He says, I'm like dead bones scattered out in front of the grave. I'm like wood that's been cut and split and is completely cut off from life. You say, what is he exactly saying? He's saying, I am in a position where I have lost all hope. There is no hope at all for me to be delivered. Whatever he was facing, if in fact it was the the situation with Saul, he had come to the place where he was completely backed into a corner. How could I ever escape from this? How will I ever get out of this situation? And we know there were times that David came to that place during this season of his life where he lost all hope. This was his reality. His reality was, from an earthly perspective, no hope. You know, it is possible for us to come to this kind of a place in our Christian life where it seems we've exhausted every resource, we've run out of options, there's nothing left, there is no hope. That's what he's describing. But remember, I said, it's a hopeful look. So despite this being his earthly perspective, in verse 8, he says this, but. And, you know, in the scriptures, so many great truths turn on this wonderful conjunction, but. So there's a reality that is expressed. This is his sense. This is what he feels. This is what is going on. But, he says in verse 8, mine eyes are unto thee, O God the Lord. In thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. The conjunction at the beginning of the verse gives the right perspective. It did seem hopeless. It did seem as if there was nowhere to turn. It did seem as if there was nothing that could possibly come good out of this situation. Though it seemed hopeless, the psalmist said, Mine eyes are unto thee. At all costs, We must keep our eyes upon the Lord. We always must look to our master. He describes the one he is looking to in verse 8 as God the Lord. He is the Lord Jehovah. Jehovah who is the master. He is the one who's in charge. It may seem bleak. It may seem like there's no hope. It may seem like there's nowhere to turn, but there is a place to turn Keep your eyes on the Lord. He is the one who's in control. He begs for God not to leave him destitute. Not just him. He says, leave not my soul destitute. He is at risk of losing everything. You know, it's one thing to lose your earthly riches. It's one thing to lose the, your, your career or your family or something like that. It is an entirely different thing to be destitute in your soul, to be, as it were, abandoned, to be left alone, to be, have everything laid bare and, and stripped away. He's describing that he is in danger of coming to the place where from his inner man, he loses all sense of hope. He says, Lord, if you don't deliver me, My soul's going to be destitute. Leave not my soul destitute. We ought to have this kind of desperation for God in our lives. Our eyes ought to be on God. We ought to be looking to Him, and we ought to be looking to Him with... Look at the word there in verse 8. In thee is my trust. Trust. 
This is a deep, abiding faith. This is a confidence that won't quit. He says, Lord, I've lost trust in everyone and everything else, but in Thee is my trust. Trust placed in God is well-placed confidence. You can be assured of this fact tonight that if you trust in the Lord, you haven't mistrusted. He'll not leave you alone. He'll not leave you destitute in your soul. Now, with this perspective, though it seems that there's no hope from an earthly view, he realizes that God is able to do something. He cries out again to God with some specific requests in verse 9 and 10. First of all, as he anticipates God's work, as he anticipates God's work in his life, he asks the Lord to keep me. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me and the gins of the workers of iniquity. This reminds us of the language in Psalm 140 which we looked at last week. And we saw that there were those in his life who were putting out traps and they were trying to ensnare him. They were trying to to pull him off the path and keep him from walking in the plan of God. They were trying to keep God from, from fulfilling his purpose in him. There are many purposeful traps that are laid for the man of God. We live in a world that is no friend to grace. We live in a world where men would love to see you fall and falter in your your testimony and in your walk for God. And and he's appropriate in calling to God and saying, God, keep me from danger. Keep me. I look back in my life and I think of times when God whisked me away from certain temptation. I can see it as plain as day now. And I wonder if God hadn't whisked me away from that trap of temptation, I wonder whether I would have stood. I wonder if I would have been able to, to, to keep my integrity or I wonder if I would have given in to sin. But God was merciful and gracious to take me away from it and deliver me. And I praise God for it because I know the weakness of my flesh. He says, God, they're trying to lay a trap for me. They're trying to ensnare me. Those gins, again, that type of a snaring net. They're trying to entrap me and keep me from living for you. But God, I need you to keep me from that. Not only did he pray for himself, but in verse 10, he prayed for the wicked man. Again, it's an imprecatory prayer. And he cries out to God, let the wicked fall into their own nets, whilst that I withal escape. He himself... Request to escape the evil intentions of these wicked men. And he prays for God to allow these wicked men to be taken in their own evil trap. Is it proper for us to pray imprecatory prayers? Well, they're in the scripture. And certainly we believe in the justice of God. Does this mean that David wasn't concerned about mercy? Well, we know how David responded to Saul, don't we? When David was given an opportunity to take vengeance upon Saul himself, he literally had Saul in front of him and could have struck the life out of him. David said, God forbid that I should touch the Lord's anointed. He left vengeance in the hand of God, and yet he still cried out to God, the God of justice, that he would allow the wicked to fall into the traps that they had set. We do live in an evil and wicked world, brethren. 
There's much wickedness that's going on in our world. And we ought to cry out to God that He would bring justice and righteousness to reign in this world. We ought to pray that God's kingdom would come and His will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is how Jesus instructed us to pray. So he's crying out and trusting the Lord. Even here in this place of calamity, he's making his cry to God. And evidently, he believes that God is going to hear and answer his prayer. And from our perspective, knowing the rest of the story, don't we realize that God did hear? God did answer his prayer. And this gives us tremendous cause for rejoicing when we consider this cry of desperation and we know that there is a God in heaven who makes haste to us when we cry to him for help. Tonight, I don't know what you may be bearing, what burden you may be under, what trial of affliction or perhaps persecution you may be facing, but I know this, there's a God in heaven who cares about the burden of your heart and you can come to him and bring that burden to him.